Let's take our Bibles together. You can turn in your Bible to John chapter 4, 21 through 24. I'm not going to read it just yet. I'll read it in a moment. I'll let you turn there. All right, I'm going to begin with prayer. I know the reality of it is I, we just sang, you know, show us Christ. That was intentionally put into the song selection this morning because we need to see Jesus. The scriptures reveal Christ to us. Um, but I need divine help to make sure I bring that out. So pray along with me, would you? Father in heaven, we, we ask for your help. And while this word that lays open before us is living and active, we, in our natural state, are, are dull and we are confused at times and we are stubborn and we still battle with sin and that corrupts our thinking. And so, Lord, we need you to break through by your Holy Spirit. We need you to do work in us that we cannot do for ourselves. We, we need you to apply your living and active truth to us. Lord, uh, you choose to do this through preachers, mere men. Um, so nothing of divine import can be accomplished here apart from the very working of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask that you would have freedom among us. Be, um, be guiding my, my words. Um, but Lord, as well, guide our hearts and give us ears that are ready to hear and hearts that are ready to believe. And we pray it that Christ would be shown to us and we pray it in his name. Amen. Um, being a Canadian and an observer of culture, I've come to realize that there are so many ways that Canada and the USA are very culturally similar, but there are little differences that you find here and there, uh, and it's in some of the things that, that people feel are important. Uh, I was visiting one of our church members in their home, and I was asked, and, and I asked, I should say, and they appreciated that it took off my shoes when I entered their house. And, and as I was thinking about it and reflecting with them, that's the way it was in Canada. Uh, we always took off our shoes when entering our own homes and when visiting others. That's just what we did. Now, when we moved here, we noticed people don't take their shoes off. So I've changed, actually. I've adjusted, it seems. I now wear my shoes in my house. And Kathy would rather me not, but it's just, hey, it's the American way, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a silly little example, but people have their own reasons why or why not to wear shoes in the house. And, and we should certainly do our best to respect whatever anybody feels. But it comes down to this. It, people make these decisions because it matters. It matters. And there are reasons why something matters to someone and maybe not to someone else. But it's simply something that they, they value. And like I said, it's just a, a silly example, but of a much weightier reality. We all have things that we, we hold dear, ways of doing things that speak to our very identity as people. And I believe the same thing is true for the local church, and the same is true for us here at Overland Hills Church. This morning, if you've looked at the bulletin cover or read ahead, we're beginning a series on our church's core values, and I'm calling this simply what matters, what matters. 
The dictionary definition for values is simply principles and standards of behavior, the judgment of what is important. Principles or standards of behavior, a judgment about what is important. And when you think about values that we as a church hold, it it really answers the question, what kind of church are we? What kind of church are we? Now, in weeks past, we've spent some time focusing on our mission, that is leading people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And we talked about the various marks of discipleship. Our mission describes what we do together. Our mission describes what we do. But our values, what they do is that they inform, and in fact, they even control how we do that mission. Now, the mission, of course, comes from Jesus. And of course, if we think rightly about the mission, that how we do that mission likewise must be informed by the scriptures. So when we talk about our core values as a church, they are things that matter to us because we wholeheartedly believe that they matter to God. So I want us to look at a couple of values, core values this morning. But in order to properly anchor our understanding, I want us to turn to that scripture passage I had you look up. We're going to find there two two values, at least I'll extract from that two values. John chapter 4, 21 through 24, uh, and there are Bibles in the room. So if you didn't bring one of your own, you can help yourself if you're not afraid to pick it up. Um, I can't guarantee that they've all been wiped down and sanitized, but they are what they are, so um, uh, help yourself to one of those. And if you don't own one, well, I'll say this, you don't own a Bible or if you once owned one and you misplaced it and you don't know where it is anymore, or if the Bible you have is King James and it's hard to read, take that one. Make it your own, all right? Page 889 is where you'll find it in that Bible. All right, let's, let's give our attention to the scripture. I'll pick it up in verse 21. This is Jesus speaking. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This is God's word. Now, the setting for this brief passage is Jesus' encounter with a, with a Samaritan woman at a well in a place called Sychar. Now, Jesus made this statement to this woman in response to her specific question that she asked of him about where is the right physical location for worshiping God. Now, that question really was probably an attempt to distract Jesus from the very pointed fact that he uh, highlighted in her life that she indeed was living with a man who was not her husband after five failed marriages. So probably she was squirming here. And so she, she throws him a theological question. But Jesus doesn't back away from that. And in fact, he, he builds it into his entire case about who he is 
and why she needs to trust him to find what is living water. But we want to take this answer and just give our focus to that as, a, as an understanding of where we find some values. And there's a couple of values that we, we have as a church. We value the word of God and we value worship, but I'll take them in order the way I'm ordering it this morning is we value Christ-exalting worship and we value the sufficiency of God's word. And I'll show you how we get those in a moment. So those are our values, and I believe they're highlighted here for, in the, uh, for us in this text. So first, let's, let's take them uh, first value. We value Christ-exalting worship. And hopefully, hopefully you've experienced that this morning, but I want to back it up with, with the scriptures. So first of all, what is worship? What is worship? Um, in the, the, the original word in the New Testament, I won't give it to you in the original language, but it's defined really as a, a kind of a physical posture. In, it wrapped up in this is the idea of kneeling or prostration. Prostration being just laying out uh, hands in front and just face down. But that physical posture has the purpose of, of paying homage or, or showing respect or reverence. And that respect or reverence is given to someone of greater or worth or, or someone deserving of special honor. Now, if we ask the question, who do we worship? Of course, I, I think you're going to say the answer is obvious from the text. But I want us to consider for a moment that we are all naturally inclined towards worship. Why? Why are we naturally inclined towards worship? Because we, we tend to praise what we value the most. And that's, that's true whether people are believers and religious or not. Or maybe you might say that worship is always a religious experience. So what's going to be happening next week in Ohio, Randy, the Huskers are going to be playing, I believe, Ohio State. Is that correct? All right. And, and I think some might rightly say that there's a little bit of a worship service going on there with its own liturgy. Now, if, that, if, if the Huskers control the liturgy, it's going to be something, uh, you know, antiphonal kind of, go big red, and there's this, you know, that's like part of the liturgy, right? We get it. There are lesser things that get public adulation, right? Lesser things than God. Musicians, even politicians, and you watch the way that some people feign over... over their politician of choice. Now, now, there's nothing wrong, of course, with, with praising and affirming talent or, or a favorite team. But the Bible tells us that, that God's people, as we, his people, we must give our highest praise, our greatest expressions of love and reverence for God himself. And we, as his people, worship God because he seeks it from us. That's what Jesus said. God seeks worshipers. He wants our worship. Now, I would say this, that in spite of the fact that Jesus says it here, he's simply reiterating something that has shown up earlier in the scriptures. Worship is simply an act of obedience to what is called the greatest command, Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Nothing is excluded from that. 
the heart and the soul. That's, I would take it, our will, our, our emotions. It, it's, it's maybe a posture of the mind, right? Heart and soul. But also our might. What is our might? It's, it's that which employs our bodies to express that love. Let me ask you, believer in Jesus, child of God, does the posture of your body demonstrate your love for God? Now, certainly kneeling and bowing is important, but there are other ways we can use our might, our bodies, to worship the Lord our God. And we had an opportunity a few moments ago as we sang songs of praise together that uses your body. It takes effort, doesn't it? Yeah, I've had those moments when I'm worshiping with God's people and I'm just kind of tired and I don't feel like opening my mouth and singing. It takes energy, doesn't it, to express it. Thinking and feeling love towards God is is good. But do you also love God with your might? Do you have a physical posture of worship? So why do we worship? Well, we worship out of obedience. And because this is the truest thing we can do, right? If God is who the Bible says he is, to give him praise to express that, is it not the truest thing we can do? Is it not? Well, how do we worship? How do we worship? Now, the form of worship matters. Now, Jesus made that clear. The woman's question to Jesus was posed to settle the matter. You Jews worship here. You worship over in Jerusalem. We Samaritans worship here she doesn't say the word, but this is what it means. Uh, this is what's in reference. Jerazim. And there's some history here. When the kingdom of Israel was divided after the reign of Solomon, the kings of the northern kingdom, what was called Israel, the southern kingdom was called Judah, they didn't want their people traveling to Jerusalem. So a site was chosen as an alternative to Jerusalem. And that site had some, some historical reason for being chosen. But the fact of the matter is, The Lord never, ever commanded that a temple be built there. And Samaritan worship, in the end, was ultimately corrupted by idolatry, using a calf, a cow, a bull, as a means of of worshiping the Lord. But what Jesus did in that conversation was he set that aside. He set both Jerusalem aside, and he also set aside Jerusalem saying that true worship was not dependent upon place, but a person. And that person is Jesus. Worship that is in spirit and truth, according to Jesus and according to our text, has some essential elements. First of all, it is through Christ. True worship is through Christ. So if we're going to be worshipers of God, that worship is through Christ. Now, Jesus says to the woman, the hour is coming and is now here. Now, in the past, as I said, the temple in Jerusalem was the place of worship. And what Jesus was doing here is declaring a change. He says, the hour. Now, when John, in John's gospel, when you see the hour, what, what John has in mind, and of course, taking the words of Jesus, is a specific reference to Jesus' suffering and death 
at the cross and ultimately would lead to his resurrection on the third day. So he says, a time is coming, there's an event, and is now here. There's a person, in effect, Jesus is saying, I'm the one. He didn't say it that way, but the is now here has to be self-referential. Jesus is identifying himself as the one through whom true worship is possible now. So a true worshiper of God must come through Jesus. So let me say this. Jews may acknowledge Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as we do. But if they reject Jesus as Messiah, then whatever they're offering, it's not true worship. Because Jesus said the hour is coming and is now here. And that hour has come and we look past, we look in the past to that event at the cross. A Muslim, likewise, may acknowledge the God of Abraham. But if the Muslim rejects Jesus as the divine son of God, then he is not a true worshiper. And that's why, brothers and sisters, why we value Christ exalting worship. It is a distinctive of the church. Worship that is not through Christ is not true worship. Let me back this up from Hebrews 13, 15. It says this, through him, that is Jesus, through him, let, through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Through Jesus, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. In worship, we acknowledge the name of Jesus. In worship, we reflect on the goodness of God and the immensity of his grace to to send his son, the divine son of God who, who possessed all glory and honor from eternity past, humbling himself to take on human flesh, to be found, as it says in Philippians 2, in appearance as a man, with the ultimate goal of suffering and dying in our place. Jesus is the focus and the means through which we worship God. So Christ-exalting worship, obviously, it is through Christ. Secondly, Christ-exalting worship is worship in spirit, worship in spirit. You see what, what Jesus is saying um, in verse, uh, let me find it here. The hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Spirit and truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, you see this. This is a little bit challenging. Spirit. What, what does he mean by spirit? It's a little bit challenging because the original has no, no uppercase or lowercase. We don't know, so there could be some confusion. So here's what I mean. Is the spirit, worshiping in spirit and in truth, as in the Holy Spirit? Or does Jesus mean the spirit of the worshiper. Now, the, the translators of the ESV have made a decision, an interpretive one, to make that lower case. And I take it that they're correct. I believe Jesus means the spirit of the worshiper. 
but in this sense, that the worshiper is someone who has been enlivened by the Spirit of God. So it is in spirit, that is to say, because you're alive in Christ, ultimately. This is what John says at the beginning of the gospel. He says, he calls us children of God who were born not of blood nor the will of the Father nor of the will of man, but of God, born of God, ultimately is enlivened, made alive by the Spirit. It's what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So, so brothers and sisters in Christ, as, as new creations in Christ, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are now to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And this new life that we enjoy in the Spirit invades not only our minds, but also our emotions, and it controls our body. So when we gather as the children of God, we have this this joy of fellowship together with God in spirit, a spiritual family worshiping our God who is spirit. He doesn't have a form that we would behold him. God is spirit. And we, likewise, as spiritually alive people, must come to him that way. Christ-exalting worship, thirdly, is worship that is together. Together. Now, when Israelites worshipped, it was understood not to be a merely personal matter. It was not merely personal. It could be personal and certainly should be personal, but it wasn't merely personal. Worship was centralized at the temple. The people traveled together and they gathered together. Worship was the expression of the assembly, not merely an individual posture. Do you get that? The expression of the collective, of the assembly, not merely an individual posture. And lots of people say, well, I can worship God when I'm, you know, taking a walk in nature. And yeah, Yes, you can. But if that's your only worship, I would say it's deficient. The psalmist says this, Psalm 34, 3, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name Together. Together. That's what the psalmist assumes. We do this together. So like I said, you can worship individually. You can praise and thank God anywhere. But I believe our worship is deficient if we do not gather with the people of God to magnify him together. And you get this, I think. So we'll talk about the secular religious ceremony of the Husker game. You can watch it on TV. Boy, to be there, right? You can watch a concert on TV. If you've got front row seats, man, that was great. You can have a phone call with your loved ones. But really, is it a substitute for being there? 
So as a church, we value Christ-exalting worship. It's a core value. So let me ask you, do you? Do you value Christ-exalting worship? And I realize to challenge, and I'm challenging those of you who are at home, and I'm not, I'm trying, I'm, I'm not being critical of decisions to stay away because of health given this COVID season. But my only plea to you is don't hold this distance worship as an ideal. You will make your own decision about when you feel that it's safe to gather with God's people, but don't hold the distance as an ideal. You know, the world often finds its joy in debauchery. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 5, 18. Tells us not to be drunk, but rather be filled with the Spirit. And, and how do we get that? And here's a practical outworking of what it means to gather together and worship. How do we get filled with the Spirit? And that, it's not like we're gonna take the Spirit and, and pour him into us. But it's how are we controlled by the Spirit? Well, Ephesians 5, 19 tells us. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what's happening there? Yeah, we're expressing in worship praise to God, but we're speaking it to each other. And when I sit on this side of the room and somebody sits on the other side of the room where we're declaring the same truth together, somehow, that's just how I feel, somehow it's bigger if I was just saying it alone. When all those voices get together declaring the praises of the Lord our God through Christ, it grips my heart in a, in a kind of a different way than if I was just sitting alone. True worship is through Christ, and we worship because we've been made spiritually alive and together. That's Christ-exalting worship. Secondly, it's a two-point sermon. Secondly, we value the sufficiency of God's word. Now, I hope you know that, but I'm reinforcing basic truths here this morning. We, we value the sufficiency of God's word. Now, now, if we ask the question, what is truth? What is truth? Now, Pilate, if you know the story around the crucifixion of Jesus, Pilate famously asked that question when Jesus declared to him that he had come in the world to bear witness to the truth. Pilate says, what is truth? It's kind of a mocking way. And Pilate certainly wasn't the first to ask the question, and he will not be the last. The matter of truth is something that our culture wrestles with every single day. Now, you see this in the way, again, not getting political, but just generalizing. You see this in the way how politicians speak of their political opponents. Truth seems to matter little. You see this as well in the way in which they explain a prior policy decision by denying that they ever said it. Well, I didn't say that. You got it on tape, and they just still carry on. Well, I didn't say that, or I didn't mean it. You took me out of context. And, and we get this as well. At a social level, truth has become this sort of a subject, subjective thing, hasn't it? And tragically, when people experience some sort of significant trauma, I've heard this, describing the event as my 
truth. And I think I know what they're saying. But truth, for it to be something real, it has to have an immovable anchor point, doesn't it? Truth is defined as what has actually been, what actually has happened. Truth is defined as well as what is and what will be. And, and rightly stated, only God knows all and possesses all power. Therefore, he is the source of truth. Now, Jesus said in, in his response to the Samaritan woman, he said, God seeks worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. And this is where I'm landing here. Now, I get it that the statement is primarily about worship. Now, it mattered, it mattered that the Samaritans had chosen a place that God had not approved for worship. Their worship was not true. And it mattered as well, when you look at the history of the Israelites, it mattered as well that when the Israelites grew impatient that Moses, up on Sinai, meeting with the Lord to receive the law, had taken so long to come down from the mountain that the Israelites pressured Aaron to construct a golden calf to fall down before and say, and he even said it to them, behold, your God who brought you out of Egypt to something he made. It mattered. The Israelite worship was not true. And in both cases, it was, it was not true because it went against what God had explicitly said. We know what's true because God has spoken. There is a body of truth from God that we can know. And it's everything that we need to live. It says in Deuteronomy 8.3, man. Now, the setting of this, you're familiar with this, but the setting of this is the receiving of the manna. Why did God give it? Because God wanted them to understand something that God had spoken. It was a very declarative word of God that provided for the Israelites not something they would do on their own. And he ultimately says this, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, in the past, in the past, God spoke and everything came into existence. We have creation. It's here. Including man. God gave the man intelligence to understand the things that he would say. So God, in the garden, gave man some commands. Eat, enjoy. But here's a tree. That's not for you. He could understand the command. He disobeyed the command. But since then, God has been speaking primarily then through prophets. And those words have been recorded for us. That's our Old Testament. Those prophets spoke of a time when God would send a spokesman, a divine voice Possessing a human body. The writer of Hebrews describes him long ago at many times and in many ways. This is Hebrews 1.1. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So Jesus' words and the witness of his truth through the apostles, that's our New Testament. There it is. We have the scriptures, Old and New 
Testaments. So before Jesus was revealed to the world, the world had everything that it needed from God. Then since the Son of God came into the world, we now have the complete message and we have everything that we need from God. So, so all scripture ultimately is given to us to point us to Christ. All 66 books of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And, and if you want something to remember, uh, I heard this some years ago. Um, this may be not exactly accurate to the original quote, but this is the best I can remember it. But when we think of the Bible, in the Old Testament, Christ is predicted. In the Gospels, Christ is presented. In the Acts and the Epistles, Christ is explained. And Revelation, Christ is expected. The whole of the Scriptures is given to us by God to point us to Christ. And because these are God's words, they have, they have a unique authority and power. You know, every other kind of thing that has ever been written, every other kind of speech that has ever been given, we, the hearer, stand over it, right? We decide. We evaluate. We say, hmm, I wonder if that's true. I wonder if that will apply to me. I wonder if that's useful to me. We stand over it as its judge. We decide whether it's useful or relevant. But not so God's word. Not so God's word. It stands over us. It judges us. And it's not passive in the doing. It acts on us. It forms us. It conforms us. It's as the writer of Hebrews says in 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and a marrow. And get this, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's this word. And every time we attend to it, it acts on us. We don't stand over it. It stands over us. And God still speaks. So this book we have, this word of his, it has this power to create spiritual life. In the same way that when God in the beginning said, let there be light, the light had to appear. The light didn't sit there saying, I, I wonder if I'm going to be or not. When God declares, it just happens. That same power is in the scriptures today. So this, this book, ultimately, because it's applied by the Holy Spirit, it creates spiritual life in those who were spiritually dead. And that's you and me, isn't it? We were once dead in our transgressions and sins. But God made us alive. How? He spoke his word. You heard the word preached. Someone shared the gospel message with you about Jesus, but it was anchored in the word of God. And you became alive. That's what happened to me when I was seven years old at a camp, hearing somebody preach from the Bible. I was convicted. And I surrendered and I said, I need a savior. I was made alive. Bob quoted this in Sunday school, but 
And he said it will be quoted next week. Well, it's going to be quoted again this morning. So here we go. 2 Timothy 3, the sacred writings. Paul's saying this to Timothy, referring to the scriptures. Are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And he says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, every good work. So what Paul is saying to Timothy is the same word that saves you is the same word that trains you for everything that God commands. Therefore, it is sufficient. You and I, every day, we need God's word to confront the sin that remains in us. We need God's word to show us what godliness looks like. And we are people who are in Christ. We have believed the gospel, but we still need the word. We need God's word to reveal how we participate in the mission that Jesus called us to. God's work in our lives is ultimately accomplished through God's means, and God's means is God's word. So, we value the sufficiency of God's word. It's not just something that we admire, but for the fact that it's everything we need. Now, now the world, the world, influenced by the devil, tries to tell us that God's word is outdated, outmoded, irrelevant, out of touch. Now, the world will gladly affirm some things in the scripture, but they'll twist other things in God's word, just, just like the serpent did in the Garden of Eden. We're always going to be faced with, did God really say? And sadly, there are churches. And so for us to state what we value, that we value the sufficiency of God's word is making a statement. Because there are churches who wouldn't say that. Or they might say that, but in practice, it'll come to some matter that the culture doesn't like us. Understandably, in a sin-corrupted world, people have same-sex attraction. They're created in the image of God and they're worthy of being loved, but it's still to choose to go down that road and marry and act on those inclinations. The world says, well, that's natural. It's just how God made them. And we're saying, because we believe in the sufficiency of God's word, we're going to say, no, we know what God said. But there's so many churches going, yeah, maybe it's just culturally informed. You know, the Bible was written to a different time. And brothers and sisters, we're saying this. We value the sufficiency of God's word because we've got to hold that course. And and you, members of the church, hold us to it too. I said this to a brother out here this morning. I said, if you ever hear us being off the mark in our preaching or teaching, say something. If it doesn't sound right, say, where'd you find that? Please do that. We all want that accountability. So we state it emphatically. We value the sufficiency of God's word. And that's what kind of church we are. Well, we have a mission, leading people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. 
And someone who is fully devoted to Christ is someone who worships God in spirit and truth. God is seeking those kinds of worshipers. So we value worship and we want to provide an environment where you can give your praise to God. We're made disciples by hearing about and trusting in Jesus. And God's word gives us everything we need to know. So, things that matter. Christ-exalting worship and the sufficiency of God's word. It matters to us as a church, and I, I pray that they matter to you as individuals. May we be true worshipers who love God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you because you've spoken. And because you've spoken, you have drawn us to yourself and you've filled our hearts and you've given us a reason to give you praise. Our expressions of gratitude will last for eternity because you have been merciful to us. You poured out grace upon grace upon grace. We can never say enough. But Lord, we know that uh, every time we express the truth of who you are and the company of your people, it strengthens us to be more like Jesus. And every time we declare the truth that your scripture lays out for us, Father, we are grown to become more like Christ. So may those things always be true of us as Overland Hills Church. May that be true of us in our individual lives. Because in the end, all we want to do is bring glory to Jesus. So help us to that end, we pray in his name.